0: Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. This week we'll be joined by Amelie Le Renard, who will speak to us about her new book, Western Privilege: Work, Intimacy, and Postcolonial Hierarchies in Dubai. We'll also talk to Shamir Mako about her new article on debathification and Iraqi tra- transitional justice. And we'll hear from Peter Salisbury about recent changes in the war in Yemen and the prospects for any kind of stability. Thanks for listening to the program. This is the Middle East political science podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Amelie Lerenard uh, with her new book, Western Privilege, Work, Intimacy and Postcolonial Hierarchies in Dubai it was just published by Stanford University Press uh, after a French edition previously. Uh, Amelie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. (laughs) So tell us about this book and what you were trying to accomplish with this research. So
1: so I began writing this book after I finished my first research on Saudi Arabia uh, because I was really struck by the the discourses that the Western people I met there had about Saudis. So that was the point of departure Mm -hmm. of the book. And then I began this research about Dubai, which is actually very different from Riyadh, uh, where I worked before. And, um, and so uh, my book is, is basically uh, a post-colonial feminist perspective on Western privilege in Dubai. So what was important for me was um, first to look at both work and intimacy Uh, And for me, like, these both spheres are really important in the construction of distinctive Western subjectivities in Dubai. Um, The second point uh, is that I studied both, uh, like, Western passport holders who were white and Western passport holders who were not white. And so the book deals with this, articulation between westernness and whiteness that is produced in Dubai. And a third important uh, element in the book is uh, to go beyond exceptional representations of Dubai and to see also how, how this discourse on Dubai as other is situated. And in fact, it's used by many people I met, many uh, Western passport holders I met, who who needed to to identify themselves with an ident with you know an idealized vision of the West as you know um, associated with um, fair labor law, uh, gender equality, and so on, uh, and and defined Dubai as the exact opposite of the West very often, while they were in fact also, you know, participating in Dubai's social order as elites. And uh, I mean, they were hiring people, they were reproducing differentiation, like salary differentiation among nationalities, etc. cetera. But they, they saw themselves as outsiders to Dubai's social order. So, Yes,
0: just to give you a, a brief yeah. overview. Well, maybe we could start uh, with uh, with the point you just made about um, the exceptionalism of Dubai, because you make an argument that here and also in, in the other book you did uh, with Ahmed and Neha on you know kind of trying to de-exceptionalize the Gulf. Um, Dubai does seem quite exceptional in many ways. Uh, and yet, I think you also want to place it within globalization and kind of this broader uh, context. So tell us a little bit about how you thought about Dubai and and how you think about it in both its uniqueness and its comparative context.
1: Um, so first of all, for me, also, it was a very, it was really challenging to deexceptionalize exceptionalize Dubai and I, I think I arrived in Dubai with the same, you know, exceptionalist stereotypes that many people have about this city. And especially if you take uh, like intellectual bourgeoisie in mm-hmm. Europe and the US, like uh, we would have this very stereotypical image of Dubai as exceptionally unfair, etc. cetera. Um, so for me, like the working with Ahmed Kanna and Neavora on the other book project mm-hmm. was also very helping in this regard. Um, and so what I would say is Uh, that first, uh, during my research, I observed that people had a very different vision of Dubai depending on their previous trajectories. So, for instance, if I talk about French people, because I I interviewed a lot of French people, Mm -hmm. like uh, white French people from middle and upper classes saw Dubai as very unfair, and France as very, you know, equal and a very um, virtuous society in the end, you know, they really believed that France was a fair society. And if I take people, um, French people, um, non-white French people from working-class backgrounds, they had a, a much more nuanced vision of Dubai and France, you know, um, because they had experienced discrimination in France, because like their parents had come uh, after decolonization with very bad, you know, very low statuses in France, had very bad jobs in France, etc. So many of them would say that, you know, Dubai and France were two uh, social orders with structural inequality and structural racism. They didn't say these words, but it was their analysis in the end. So. Um, so I think it, it really made me think about uh, why do we see Dubai as such an exceptionally unfair place while it might be first a question of degree. I mean, I don't deny that, like for instance, you don't have a minimum salary. So, you know, you have inequalities in salaries that are very uh, huge, like, uh, and so like people, like people I met had, domestic employees and like some of them and like domestic employees were making 40 times less money than them, you know, than their own salaries. Right. so it's massive. So that's the first thing. Second, I think, I mean, I think we, we should take Dubai as, um, I mean, it's very interesting to, to understand um, current post-colonial globalization And for instance, the rationalization of of work on a transnational job market. Uh, Like the the essentialization of skills as Western in Dubai is very interesting. And I think it can definitely be compared with other contexts. Mm -hmm. Like Western degrees are are valued. If you have a Western nationality, your salary is higher. so it's very intre- like it's very interesting to to observe in Dubai, but you could also like yeah. find these dynamics in other spaces.
0: Um, so your your focus in the book is on Western passport holders, and you have this really interesting uh, discussion, especially early in the book, about kind of Western as an identity category. Um, but you also, as you mentioned in in your introduction, um, you know, examine that against the, 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 idea of whiteness and, um, and kind of racialization. So could you talk a little bit about that a bit more about how you see Western as an identity status and what that means in the Dubai context? Uh,
1: yes, definitely. So I don't, um, I don't use the concept of Westernness against the concept of whiteness. My intention is more to see how both concepts overlap or not. Um, so, um, so first of all, I chose to talk about Western people because it was really like the term that I had heard from my previous research you know, in the region. And I think, like, at least 10 years ago or 15 years ago, the word white was not very much used in Arabic, for instance. Um, So I think that my first, my point of departure is really, like, you know, um, empirical. And also, it's also materialist. Uh, In the sense that for me, the difference in Dubai between people who have Western passports and people who have no Western passport is like a difference in salaries. And so like salaries means also a difference in lifestyles. It's a difference in, in, in professional positions. Also in Dubai, if you have a certain amount of salary, you can sponsor dependents. So it means, for instance, that people who can sponsor partners and children um, must have a certain amount of salary. So it's really like, you know, it shapes um, very strong inequalities between people who have Western passports and people who have no Western passports. Uh, so that was the point of departure also. And that's why I, I decided to talk about Westerners but in the book, I also argue that whiteness is still um, an overprivileged status among Western passport holders, and especially, for instance, if you look at uh, the people who get a very, ad- very advantageous uh, expatriate contracts with various benefits and, you know, housing and. Uh, health insurance and international schooling for the children, et cetera. Like, mostly it's um, white men who get this kind of contract. So, I'm also looking at um, gender, class backgrounds, and race, and how they are like, you know, inner hierarchies inside uh, the group of Western passport holders.
0: One of the most interesting things and most innovative things about the book, I thought, was the way you treated uh, the family uh, dimension of this and um, who is allowed to bring their families over and what happens when the families come over versus those who are not allowed to do so. And so can you talk a little bit more about that, since I think that really is something which doesn't enter into uh, the way a lot of people talk about uh, the, these, these sites? Uh,
1: yes. Um, I mean, this uh, I think, I mean, I also talk about um, how, do, how the government of Dubai
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, is promoting specific lifestyles for Western passport holders. And so for me, the, what I call that, like the guest family lifestyle is a specific lifestyle promoted for uh, these families, Um, So very often, like the the families that I met in Dubai um, were composed of men under either expatriate contracts or local contracts with very, like with what we call a family package in Dubai. And so they could have a very privileged lifestyle. And, but it was also uh, based on a very, Um, clear gender asymmetry uh, in their couple. Like very often the wives were following their husbands and either they did not have a a wage uh, work or they had, you know, like part-time independent jobs with low salaries. Um, So it was very interesting to study also because they, they had, I think very, Paradoxical attitudes. Uh, So, for instance, for them, like they really identified with gender inequality, with gender equality, um, while they were very like their their couples were very you know uh, unequal, and like the division of labor between husband and wife was very radical. And another interesting point is. that these families um, very often hired um, domestic employees like and what like they call them nannies, to take care of their kids. And they also have had very paradoxical discourses about uh, hiring domestic employees that that were living with them very often. So um, so there were um, many of them were convinced that they were saving these women from you know bad Arab employers so they also had this uh, kind of discourse and it was central in their identification as Westerners and it's also interesting to study these uh, families in the um, you know, as uh, revealing something about the biopolitics of of Dubai, and also maybe of transnational migration in general, because these families were very often speaking about Dubai as very family-friendly, while, you know, for Dubai, for many people, for many, like, people in low-paid occupations, and from southern societies, Dubai is a place where they can only come alone, and they have to leave their children in their own... Home countries, So I think it's also interesting to study for this and how the government of, of Dubai see Western families as, you know, mainly consumers, like they're really here to consume, to consume, um, you know, expensive houses, to consume luxurious lifestyles and um, expensive international schooling. So it's also interesting to see how these families are both pampered and, and really like uh, seen as consumers in this context.
0: And then you have the, the other government promoted life, promoted lifestyle, the uh, the singles.
1: Yes. So um, the singles, I, I think, so the singles are not necessarily single in right, fact. Right. So I, I, I call them single because they came in Dubai as single. And so, uh, on their on their res- residence card and so on. they are singles. Um, and the singles it was maybe more difficult for me in the beginning to, to see how their discourse was also um, a discourse of distinction toward Dubai. Uh, so many of them talked to me about Dubai's nightlife. So it's kind of, in fact, Many of them talked about Dubai as you know an experience. So for them it's an experience. And Dubai's nightlife is an experience that they make for one or two years and they really enjoy it. And so many of them had like considered Dubai life Dubai's nightlife as um, like a very nice experience that they enjoyed, but that they also fi- found like tacky, superficial, where it was very difficult to make serious relationships. Um, So they talked about all of this. And when they talked about it, I thought um, that there was also a very interesting um, way to oppose, you know, Western societies seen as, places where people are not superficial and where you can have like real relationships and so on and Dubai society in which like people are supposed to be, you know, uh, superficial materialist and so on. So um, that was very interesting to analyze. Also, because in fact, many of them had met partners, life partners in Dubai, so, you really had this imaginary of Dubai as a place where people are are here to consume and so on. But in fact, when when you look at what happened, like many of them actually met people, but they they were also really creating distance from um, people in low paid occupations and from Southern countries. Um, So for instance, The way in which they said, you know, like I cannot, I can never become friends with an Indian waitress. I mean, this kind of discourse also um, was interesting for me. Like some of them actually um, were friends with people with no Western passports, but it was like uh, people in, in the same kind of occupations and professional positions that they had.
0: And one of the things which really comes through is that even when they're partying, uh, they're always networking. Uh, there's this culture of constantly you know, forming connections and trying to move on to the next job and that sort of thing. And I thought that you did a, a really interesting job of showing how that kind of networking tends to valorize certain types of self-presentations and um, kind of just cultivated uh, uh, respectability or availability.
1: Yes, I, I do, um, I mean, um, the book also shows that uh, the government of Dubai really tried to, to attract you know, uh, Western passport holders. Um, and it's also because it's like the government, both the government of Dubai and the organizations uh, use westernness in a specific way um, and in an essentialized way also. So westernness and whiteness are constructed as you know elements in the service of branding um, branding Dubai, branding Dubai's organizations and so on. And so I think it comes with um, expectations, Um, So um, Western passport holders, and especially, I mean, people that were uh, socialized in Western societies, which are like, they are the center of the book. Uh, So just a side remark, but like uh, many people in Dubai have two two passports. So you also have these elites from the Middle East who have like, who has second passports so the book is not centered on them but of course it's a very important group that makes the 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 borders of like the category the western the category of westerners very blurred so,
0: and, they're, and they're part of that same social elite
1: yes exactly uh, but so if i come back to to Western passport holders socialized in the West and the way in which uh, they have to, you know, conform to specific expectations and uh, pr- like self-presentation norms, um, ways to interact with people and so on. Um, so that was also very interesting to analyze like uh, what what are you supposed to perform as a as a westerner in an organization if you are hired because you represent something as a westerner that your organization wants to benefit from so then how are you supposed to behave and so on so I've been also uh, analyzing this and and so for instance um, people um like some people had stories of being discriminated against for, for you know, like looking too Muslim or too Indian or this kind of thing. Um, you also have um, experiencing experiences such as you know you should always dress with very um, uh, with like branded items and. Uh, in a very posh way and so on to not be mistaken as non-Western, especially if you are not white. Uh, So these uh, expectations were all the more constraining for people who who could be mistaken as non-Western.
0: So expensive watches and uh, expensive purses and the right clothes and all that, that's actually important for that self-presentation.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: But it's also this kind of cultivated ability to interact. I mean, you mentioned just— you know, some people are comfortable walking into a five-star hotel, and uh, you know, and, and engaging in small talk, and for others, it's much more difficult. And, yes. that, and, and but but that's racially coded in lots of ways.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's also coded in terms of uh, language skills. And I think it's also, <laughs> for this reason, I was I, I was really able to see it because um, for me, it's difficult also, you know. Um, but it was interesting to see that, for instance, I met a um, US white businessman who had launched um, yeah, a small initiative that promoted networking through networking um, courses. So basically he was proposing people um, to come and he was um, teaching them how to network uh, through like techniques such as, you know, like the elevator pitch, this kind of thing. And it was really, in this kind of circumstances, I could see how, um, like clearly, like people that were from the US or from um, the UK would really consider their own way to interact in English as the good way and the cool way, you know? So, and uh, people who came from other backgrounds and especially people from you know, Southern societies would be expected to learn how to do that. Um, and so it was very interesting to observe this and um, how people would really try to sell themselves by um, like, as everybody said, like this expression is weird, <laughs> but everybody was talking about selling themselves through, um, you know, adopting this kind of uh, in fact, culturally situated small talk and so on and jokes.
0: And obviously highly gendered.
1: Yes. Also like the self presentations um, are very binary and gender, I I mean, they're both I think very um, like, everybody is expected to perform their nationality, so you don't have much uh, border crossing, I think. Of course, I mean, you also have a lot of uh, binational people and so on. Uh, but, like, for many people, it's really, like, trying to, uh, to perform your nationality um, and performing your gender and specific gender identities so... Uh, I think like single Western women are also um, I mean many of them have very quick and uh, interesting careers in in the in the Dubai's job market but they're also expected to perform um, a model you know of stereotypical western femininity uh, which means like being both professional but also you um, I think in an implicit way, sexually available. And so this is also used by organizations Um, and women who have children in Dubai don't make good careers. Like it's very difficult for them. They get discriminated against and so on. So I think it goes with this idea that you should be both, you know, like available at any time for your organization because Many people I met had this very neoliberal discourse about, you know, I should be available uh, 24 hours and so on. And, um, and at the same time to be sexually available and available for, you know, seduction plays and so on. And um, so that was also something I, I observed.
0: I guess one last question is that, you know, so you've done this research, it builds on your previous work. And what do you hope that people within anthropology, Middle East studies, globalization studies, what do you hope that they most take away from uh, this next step in your your publications?
1: Um, I think for me, uh, when I was um, studying Middle East studies, the... um, the status of, you know, Westerners in the Middle East was never questioned and never studied. So, um, so West, like people from the West were supposed to do the research and uh, people from the Middle East were supposed to be like, you know, the, the object of research. So I think um, it would be interesting if in, in, in this book, helps to open this conversation about um, Western passport holders in the Middle East. And um, yes, and their role also in reproducing uh, sometimes the unfair social orders and so on. Um, so I think it's the first thing I, I would hope that this book um, produces. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also hoping to participate you know, in in, I think, turns that I see in the discipline uh, recently. So the taking into account race and problematizing race in the region, um, like opening dialogue with uh, studies of of race and uh, ethnicity uh, more openly. Um, Also the post-colonial turn Uh, of, like, studies of Arabian Peninsula that has begun before this book, but I think, I hope it participates in it. And I'm also interested in um, studies on gender and sexuality and hoping, you know, to also um, contribute to this field. I mean, Middle East feminist studies are a very rich field and was very inspiring for me, so... And I'm also hoping to contribute to it through
0: this book. It's a it's a really interesting book, and it was uh, it was fascinating to read, and and especially this uh, kind of reversing the ethnographer's gaze, and uh, you know turning it on the white experts instead of the native subjects is uh, I think it's it's an important move. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, uh, we've been talking to Amelie Le about her book Western Privilege, just out with Stanford. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much again for inviting me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's article segment, we're joined by Shamiran Mako of Boston University. She's the author of a brand new article, Subverting Peace, The Origins and Legacies of Debathification in Iraq, published in the Journal of Intervention and State Building. Shamiran, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Mark.
0: So tell us a little bit about this article.
2: The article looks at um, one key aspect of the post-2003 transition in Iraq, which is the question of lustration um, and effectively what to do with former Ba'athists and people both on the military side, but also within uh, Iraq's bureaucracy uh, pre-2003, and really looks at debathification as a form of lustration. Um, And lustration is effectively a policy within the kind of peace building and transitional justice um, uh, literature that looks at what to do with members of the former regime or former combatants, and looks at the extent to which either combatants and members of the former regime can be reintegrated back into the emergent kind of democratizing order, Um, or if they are to be excluded what the kind of parameters of exclusion are. Mm-hmm. And so the article looks at debaithification. It looks at its origins, uh, its implementation, its legacies, and really kind of tries to triangulate uh, the American policy on the one hand, the Iraqi expatriate elites who were instrumental in formulating debathification, along with uh, the neocons of the uh, uh, of the Bush era, but also uh, afterwards the kind of the implementation when it came within the CPA and the kind of discussions that were happening within the coalition provisional government within that first year, that critical year of the transition um, and and the DoD on on the other hand. Um, and so I look at two processes that subverted, the application of deobatification as a form of lustration. And I first look at what were the outcomes of this kind of extensive reliance by the United States um, on a narrow circle of previously excluded expatriate elites um, who were, uh, you know, advising a lot of the kind of the lustration process uh, that was was happening before 2003 and after 2003. Um, And then I also look at the kind of impact that this had on particular communities that were disproportionately affected by debacification. and in the post-2003 order, that's kind of primarily uh, Sunni Arabs in Iraq.
0: So when you look at when you talk about lustration, um, one of the points you make in the article, quite interesting, is that it could be a vehicle for transitional justice. Um, but in the case of Iraq, you don't think that it was used that way.
2: Yeah, and I think what's interesting in in the research, uh, when I started looking at other cases where illustration was implemented, so here we think about, you know, Eastern Europe, the post-communist transitions, um, to an extent in South Africa and parts of Latin America, Argentina, etc., is that you had, or most notably where Iraq, the case that Iraq was compared with was post-war Germany, and specifically denazification was kind of used as the blueprint for implementing de-bathification in post 2003 Iraq. One of the things that that kind of that was present in other cases that was that really wasn't in, in the case of Iraq was that you had you to a very large extent is that you had clear kind of guidelines and mechanisms um, that institutionalized the lustration process within the emergent order. Um, and here you had you know, laws that were passed that kind of dictated who was to be targeted for lustration, what institutions were to be reformulated under under lustration, and how these laws were then kind of integrated within different kind of national and subnational and even kind of provincial, et cetera, um, legal mechanisms of these states. In the case of Iraq, what's interesting is that you had a lustration policy that was very top down um, and to a very large extent actually beyond that first you know, first year between 2003 and 2004, there really was very little oversight in terms of how it came to be applied um, and uh, how it became institutionalized. And so, you know, lustration is often used within peace building and transitional justice. It's used to kind of dictate the parameters of who's to be included in the emergent order and if they're excluded, what those parameters of exclusion ought to be and the kind of consequences, depending on, you know, uh, collaboration with the former regime. In the case of Iraq, we really what we see is that lustration through debatification became a tool to exclude. And in this way, it subverted, as I argue in the article, it subverted the kind of critical phase of the peace-building process and the transitional justice process, um, you know, that was thought about uh, in, in post 2003 Iraq.
0: Give us a sense of the scale of, of lustration and debathification. How many people does this affect?
2: So it it what's interesting is because there was really uh, there wasn't a clear kind of uh, overarching mechanism, ju- judicial mechanism that oversaw how lustration was implemented. What you have is within the first uh, you know couple of months of the occupation under the leadership of Paul Bremer through the CPA in two thousand three. Um, orders one and two of debathification effectively disbanded the army and almost all security and bureaucratic sectors of the state. Um, And what's interesting is that this actually went against both the recommendations of the DOD and some CIA officers who had, you know, intimate knowledge of Iraq and the Ba'ath party. um, But it also actually went against um, some of the uh, task forces that were put in place in the Kind of the preparation phase of the occupation, so before 2003, including the Democratic Principles Working Group of Iraq, of the Iraqi opposition, which basically said that debathification cannot mean dismissing from their jobs, this kind of indiscriminate dismissing from their jobs of, of Iraqis and members of the Baath Party. But what you had is an estimated, you know, uh, about 200,000 to 300,000 soldiers who were let go. Um, most of them armed. Um, and you also had a kind of a wholesale dismantling of actually key structures of the state. And this is something I kind of outline in the article as well: governing institutions, military institutions, paramilitary units, and other units that were linked to the Basque Party. And because the Basque Party had in so many ways subsumed the state, both in terms of its military capacity and the bureaucratic and the bureaucratic capacity of, of, of the state in terms of its institutions you had effectively a wholesale purging and the hollowing out of the Iraqi state. Um, and you know what you have is effectively capable technocrats who the CIA even and some members of the DOD had hoped they would rely on in engaging in the kind of state rebuilding process were left out in the cold. And so um, you have this kind of almost really indiscriminate wholesale purges and that's what distinguishes the application of lustration in Iraq in comparison with, let's say, post-war Germany or the Eastern European transitions um, or, you know, the, to an extent in South Africa as well.
0: Now, you place a lot of emphasis on the role of these uh, former exiles and their ability to capture these, these institutions and then use them as a political tool. Why do you think they were so important? And, and how does that matter for the, for the course of, of the illustration process?
2: Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I looked at, and this is kind of part of a bigger project, is that I looked at, you know, the the Iraqi groups that were advising the U.S. government. And this this kind of led me to explore the kind of long term effects of the of the first Gulf War and the relationship between exiled elites in Iraq since 1990 with, you know, the uh, the intelligence units of different uh, American administrations, but also with political elites in the United States as well. And here I focused on the different conferences that were held, opposition conferences that were held outside of Iraq throughout the 1990s, um, sometimes even inside of Iraq in Iraqi Kurdistan after the establishment of the no-fly zone. I looked at the influence of the INC um, and the INA, you know, under Ahmed Chalabi and, you um, uh, and, and other Iraqi leaders, as well as Kurdish opposition groups, so here are the KDP and the PUK primarily. And what's interesting is that, you know, in, in 1999, the uh, United States Central Command sponsored Desert Crossing seminar, and this was a um, effectively like a workshop um, that brought in members of the Iraqi exiled elites Uh, academics, you know, members of the US intelligence units, and and obviously the DOD. And they look to identify and assess risks and threats and opportunities, you know, if the United States decided to pursue regime change in Iraq after the passing of the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998. Um, And what's interesting is that participants in that workshop, were really divided about, you know, uh, in terms of their assessment of the Iraqi opposition in exile, and a lot of times questioned the potential legitimacy and capability of these elites in exile to govern Iraq and kind of to, uh, you know, in in, in the influence they were having in the state building process in the lead up to 2003. And so what's interesting is that in the interviews that I had done is that there's this overemphasis on, Uh, the role of information that was provided by the Iraqi elites in exile, and how that information then went on to shape debathification in its most aggressive form, especially under the first critical year of the transition, um, and the role that, you know, particularly Ahmed Chalabi played in devising debathification in the kind of most extreme form.
0: So... When you look at this in the broader context, um, what do you think the big significance of your research and the article is for people who are studying transitions and transitional justice and the like? What do you think the most important takeaways are for the the field?
2: Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things. On the one hand, um, you know, the the role that and the emphasis that's placed on dissident groups And the information flow from dissident groups and the ways in which that informs policy and that informs specifically policy towards, you know, democratization and state building um, and peace building um, by Western states is, you know, something that kind of needs to be interrogated a bit more. And this has significance for, for example, you know, um, like the Libya group in exile that was informing the U.S. government in 2000, uh, 2011 and so on. Um, But also that in order for transitional justice and peacebuilding to have these kind of uh, real impact that they're intended to have, it's not enough to kind of rely on, you know, exiled elites, but also, you know, this kind of top down imposition of these mechanisms really doesn't bode well for creating sustainable, long-term and durable um, solutions to thinking about um, transitional justice and peace building more specifically and within kind of more localized contexts. Um, Iraq isn't Germany, um, obviously, and Iraq also wasn't, you know, kind of similar to the post-communist transitions. But there's this idea that what may work in some cases will also work in other cases. And so I kind of questioned this notion of a one top-down and position of these transitional justice mechanisms without taking into account the local context. Um, and on the other hand, and related to that, is, um, you know, looking kind of more holistically at what these um, kind of externally imposed notions of transitional justice even mean um, when, you know, the kind of dynamics internally on the ground in each context vary so greatly. Um, and so the kind of main takeaway is that, Um, One, Iraq is kind of absent in the literature on transitional justice and peace building specifically in relation to lustration. Um, And on the other hand, you know, I think Iraq offers a lot of kind of lessons to be learned on how not to engage in lustration um, in its most kind of exclusive and severe form and some of the outcomes we see as a result of that.
0: So, Letting it be captured as a kind of a tool of political vengeance probably isn't a great idea.
2: Exactly. And it actually kind of um, it, it not only subverted transitional justice, but it, it, it had the opposite uh, intended effect. Right. And that it actually became a tool for exclusion and for kind of specific targeting of certain communities as either regime collaborators and so on, which really affected um, you know, the imposition of kind of social cohesion mechanisms and institutions that transitional justice and peace building are meant to offer. And so it really had almost like a 180 effect in that it led to this kind of mass purges during the critical phase of the transition, which then again, kind of subverted um, uh, state building and and, and, uh, transitional justice in post 2003 Iraq.
0: Well, great. We've been speaking with Shamira Mako of Boston University. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on our topic segment, we're now joined by Peter Salisbury, senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, uh, author of a recent report uh, on Yemen. Uh, Peter, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: So tell us about this new report that came out and what's happening in Yemen that you think is especially significant.
3: Sure. So the report started as a, a short briefing and as events unfolded, as they do, in Yemen, um, it became much more in depth and, and focused on explaining the significance of, of what was happening. And two, two things were happening, Mark. Uh, uh, one, on the one hand, I was speaking to people inside Yemen, as we do, uh, about what was happening on the ground. They were very nervous about battles that were taking place in a place called Al in September. And at the same time, I was speaking to various international policymaker types, including in Washington, and they were telling me they weren't too stressed about this battle that's been ongoing for another governorate called Marib to the north of Albaida for the past year and a half, because they thought it had stalemated. And what transpired was that the, the fighting in Albaida was a precursor to a renewed push into the south of, of Marib. Um, and in fact, as we describe it in the report, that this this fighting in Al Bayda, which is bang slap in the centre of Yemen, and is kind of a crossroads between the north, the south, the eastern, and the west, um, has been seen by all the Yemeni parties as hugely strategically important and a real game changer. And what's happened is at the end of September, the Houthis, who control the northwest of Yemen consolidated their control over albaida and they've really used it as a platform a launching pad to start new attacks into lots of different parts of of the the country so really really significant and at the same time as you and i were discussing just before we started recording many people outside of yemen nerd world really checked out on yemen and of the opinion that actually this thing stalemated and sooner or later the parties are going to want to sit down and talk
0: so explain to, to listeners who aren't as familiar with Yemen why Marib province is so important.
3: Sure. Marib's is important for, for two or three different reasons. Strategic, economic, um, and symbolic, I would say. Um, it's, it's first and foremost important because it's the the last major city that the internationally recognized government and its allies control and where life is, is relatively livable. It's the last kind of symbol of government success, if you want to use that word, in the north of Yemen. It's important because it is the the site of some pretty major oil and gas fields. So there is a potential revenue stream for whoever holds it, and certainly the local authorities there make a fair bit of, of money from it. And it's also symbolically important because the story among many Yemenis is that if the Houthis, who control most of Yemen's political north, which is, as you know, actually more complicated than saying the north of Yemen, you look at a map and they're two completely different things, and we can get into that or not. But when you, when you look at, at Marib, if the Houthis take it, they then control, apart from one city called Taz, which is besieged, they control Yemen's political north. And symbolically, that's that's very important to to the conflict, because really... A lot of the core fighting that's gone on in in the war has betwi- been between northern groups. Also, southern groups have been heavily involved. But in terms of sort of the, the main kind of political thrust of what happened since 2014, this is really a key symbolic moment for the conflict.
0: Especially because, as you as you point out in the report, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the south is dominated by conflict between uh, the secessionists and or the STC and mm. this internationally recognized government, which makes it more of a, a complicated battle.
3: Yeah, really in, in Yemen at this point, we have two, three, four, however many conflicts you wanna name, but you've got the, the main conflict, which is between let's say the Houthis and everybody else. And then you've got a, a sub-conflict, kind of a what we once described as a civil war within a civil war, between the STC, the Southern Transitional Council, this pro-independence group very close to the UAE, which controls Aden in the south, which is Yemen's temporary capital and various surrounding governorates. And then you've got the the government, which by and large is based in um, Riyadh, keeps on trying to return to Aden, prime minister currently in Aden, but no one else really from the the government. Um, And the government increasingly has sort of a limited patch of territory as it it keeps on proclaiming itself the legitimate sovereign in in Yemen, what the STC wants is to control basically most of what's left of of Yemen that the Houthis don't control. Um, And what the government want is for the STC to get out of the the way. Um, And they have very different interests, particularly when it comes to this fighting with the, the Houthis, where the STC have kind of watched the Houthis slowly but surely making their way into Marib, and part of them would like to see Marib fall because then they think regional actors, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and others would see them as the only game in town. They think they had to support them to prevent the Houthis from a complete takeover. But then also aware that once Marib falls, there's a very high possibility that the Houthis start paying a lot more attention to southern governorates.
0: Now, you described the Houthi strategy um, and you see it as quite strategic um, as how they've approached each of these conflicts. Walk us through that a little bit. It's not just a military campaign.
3: Absolutely. So in the, the North, what we, we've we described is uh, strangle and negotiate. And in the South, we talk about divide and, and conquer. Uh, and we've seen this with the Houthis, not just for the last few years, not just over the, the course of the, the Civil War, but really since, let's say, 20, 2011, when they became much more expansionist in terms of their, their territorial ambitions. What they'll do is before they enter an area, they'll send people to do outreach, they'll be calling local chefs, they'll be calling local dignitaries, and they'll be saying, hey, we want to come. It's really terrible the way you've been treated. We'd love to help you out. If that doesn't work, those entreaties turn into threats, turn into people saying, well, if you if you don't do this, then I guess you're on the side of the bad guys in their view. Therefore, we're going to do X, Y, Y, Z. And what will often happen is when they enter a territory, they'll surround it first, they'll continue these negotiations, and if that doesn't work, then they go in militarily and often destroy the homes of the main local leader who has become their, their rival or, or enemy, which, of course, lays down a marker for everybody else. Not only are we going to come into your area, if you don't negotiate with us, then we're going to make it so you can't come home and we're going to very symbolically defeat you And that's really what they've been doing in Marib, slowly but surely increasing their chokehold around the the city from every side and then going to the local authorities and saying, here's the deal. Here's what we will offer you. You can continue to exist, continue to rule, but under our, our authority, really. In the South and other parts of the country, they've been much more explicit in trying to really drive and exacerbate these tensions between the STC, the government, uh, largely by playing up this idea that the government is really led by Islam, Yemen's main Sunni Islamist party, and that the the Saudis, this is the new line from the Houthis, that the Saudis are are supporting what they call takfiris, what they mean are these, these Salafi armed groups in Yemen who are quite complex but also very interesting to observe, who are playing a bigger and bigger role in the conflict and who the Saudis do seem to have found to be among sort of their their better allies on on the ground. So all these really sort of complex messages from the Houthis and really quite sophisticated, for want of a better word. And then on the other side, what's also bearing in mind here is the utter sense of failure of the internationally recognised government. I can't think of a, a better word When we speak to tribal sources, military sources, even people within the government, what we hear again and again is that the Houthis' greatest ally is the government's failure to do exactly the thing that the Houthis are doing, reach out to people, work out what they need, make offers, and actually follow through on those those promises.
0: Now, in the the regular media, typically what you hear about the Houthis is just that they're Iranian-backed and an Iranian proxy. And obviously, it's a lot more complex than that. And, um, and yet the relationship between Iran and the Houthis has clearly changed over time. And how, how would you describe the major sources of Houthi power? Why are they able to be so militarily effective inside of Yemen after all this time?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And it's one of those that, that I think is more complex than other people do. So for a lot of people in the anti-Houthi camp, or a lot of people who situate themselves as being anti-Iran, for one for of a better way of phrasing it, they'll say that simply this is an invention of Iran. This is simply sort of the Hezbollah model replicated in, in Yemen. But the Houthis have an appeal and a claim um, within Yemen, which is rooted in the country's history. They've also been quite thoughtful about the way that they approach local tribal dynamics, and they've also proven to be a really strong learning organization, which is to say, for example, when they entered Sana'a, when they took over Sana'a in 2014, they did some stuff that looked a bit like governance in SADA, the governorate that they controlled um, before this massive expansion in 2014, 2015, but they, they ended up sending these supervisors into government ministries. And at the time the general sense was, well, they need help because they couldn't possibly run something state-like by themselves. And here we are seven years later, sometime on, they've absorbed large parts of Yemen's pre-war military and its institutions in Sana'a and really sort of made everything into this very fascinating but complicated hybrid of their structures, of a, a religious ideological movement slash political movement slash military movement into this thing that's just absorbed everything uh, around it. So that's that's the, the Yemeni side of it, and they have a very they attempt to have a very Yemeni national appeal and present themselves as the state. On the other side, of course, they, they've obviously been getting help, advice, resource from outside of the country. Some leaders are more open about this than others. What they will claim is that most of the help that they get is is kind of capacity building if you were at the US and working with a local group is, is how you'd, you'd describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and increasingly, there are these rumors that more and more people associated with the, the axis of resistance are entering Yemen. We keep a pretty close eye on what's happening in terms of IDs popping up, videos of people with with accents that don't, do, don't fit in, in the parts. And maybe we're missing something major, but up until now, if that's happening at scale, it's still being kept under wraps very well by, by the group. But certainly, as the Houthis have, have risen, have become more important, their pre-existing sort of fairly transactional relationship with, with Iran and with the wider kind of axis set of uh, axis of resistance network has increased and their importance to each other has increased, I, I would say. But what's interesting is there are some people within the, the movement who don't see them themselves at all as being this kind of creation of Iran or this, this sort of proxy for Iran instead see themselves as co-equals with Iran in the, the axis of resistance and potential future leaders of the axis of resistance. So the, the mentality and the psychology is a little bit different from what you'd, you'd imagine if you were outside of Yemen. Interesting. Sorry for my <laughs> dog in the background there.
0: <laughs> That's fine. Um, so for the last question, then, um, you know, obviously Yemen's humanitarian catastrophe continues apace. And mm. um does anything that we're talking about here hold out any prospect for alleviating this humanitarian catastrophe?
3: The short answer is no. Um, and that's just very sad because at the moment, what we're seeing is not just this this military fracturing of the country, but uh, an economic fracturing of Yemen as well. And increasingly, this is not just a a military war, a power struggle, a political struggle. It's also an economic conflict where people are using the, the levers of the economy at their disposal to hurt each other. And um, we've seen the value of the real in nominally government-controlled areas, so including the areas controlled by the SEC, for example, just plummet. And what that's doing is it's it's massively increasing the cost of living in most areas of the country for ordinary Yemenis. We also have this standoff over fuel on the west coast of Yemen around a a port called Hodeida, and that's increasing or leading to via various means uh, an increase in the price of fuel. So we're seeing people's incomes have just collapsed and been killed over the course of the conflict. What can you do economically right now? And now we're seeing the last few years, this kind of concurrent inflation increase in, in the cost of, of living and decrease in people's purchasing power. Um, and it's it's very difficult to see how you get a handle on that without resolving not just the, the big war between the Houthis, the internationally recognized government supported by Saudi Arabia, but also these kind of sub-conflicts mm-hmm. as well between the STC and, and the government. So it's it's very difficult to feel optimistic about the prospect for Yemen um, over the next couple of years.
0: Well, on that note, uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a sense of what the International Crisis Group is seeing in Yemen right now.
3: Thanks very much for having me, Mark.